If Shakespeare was right, and let's face it, he was seldom wrong. Well, actually, hang on a second. Was he ever wrong? I don't love the sonnets. I don't love Taming of the Shrew. And The Merchant of Venice? Eh, it's a bit much. I mean, take it easy, dude. But aside from that, he was pretty much on the nose. So if Shakespeare was right, and parting really is such sweet sorrow, then the sentiment of my guest today is a sugary blast of stone-cold sadness. In other words, get ready to say goodbye to my guest today. Don't worry, all three of us are going to do it together. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I don't even want to taste it, because every time it gets wasted, and what's the point of trying to chase it, when it's already gone, already From their final album, The Long Goodbye, that is the music of Candlebox, a band which features my guest today on the program, Kevin Martin. Let me tell you a little bit about Candlebox and Kevin Martin. With close to 10 fabulous albums under their musical belts, Candlebox have had quite a career, but they've decided that that career has come to an end. We'll get to that in a second, but before we do, a little background. The Seattle Outfit has sold millions of records, played Letterman and Woodstock, toured the world with the likes of everyone from Rush, Metallica, Foo Fighters to Our Lady Peace, and over the years counted among their personnel folks from bands like Pearl Jam, Dig, and Ugly Kid Joe. Not only that, but complicating matters, their new album, The Long Goodbye, is, in my opinion, their best yet. A muscular blast of catchy hard rock and grungy bliss the Long Goodbye is an affecting song cycle that burns with smoldering intensity on songs like the adrenalized punks, which you've just heard, to bidding farewell with the moving Hourglass, which is one of the best album closers in recent memory. All right, so the dilemma is, if Candlebox have never sounded better, why are they calling it a day? Well, singer Kevin Martin will explain, and his explanation, it's hard to argue with. As a fan, yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow, and in the back of your head, you remember that they had breaks before. One was five years, one was a decade, so you think maybe this is a false alarm. But trust me, it's not. So when you listen to this interview, forget you're a fan and just be a person for a second. Because if you can divide those two parts of yourself, you'll see that Kevin's decision to walk away is one that makes sense. I wish he'd keep going too, but I get it, and you're going to get it as well. So let's get to it. Here's me and Kevin Martin of Candlebox having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
I knew from from day one when we decided to make this record that this was going to be my last one. Um, and I and I knew that just because emotionally that's where I was. Um, I have for years I've kind of felt like um, I didn't really belong in this industry anymore. And I and I'm not sure if that's because you know I've made you know four other records in the you know in this this 2000s that um, or three other records in the 2000s that kind of came and went without any real um, you know, attention to them, and um, am I really a musician any, anymore? Am I still a songwriter? How does this whole? Am I just Kevin from Candlebox, and I'm known for Far Behind? You know, and I, that's a weird place to be as an artist. I mean, to have a career for 30 years and to think to yourself, "Am I only here because of one song?" Um, so when it came to uh, to talking to the guys about doing this album this way, I said, "Look, this is the last record, and I want it to be the last record with you guys, and I want it to be." as free as we wanted it to be. I want us to not stop ourselves from going anywhere we want to go. We, we wrote 22 songs in two weeks. Um, and then we went straight to the studio, you know, four months later and, and made this record and whittled it down to a 13 total, three on the vinyl and 10 on the digital. So that's a, you know, that's a fast process, but the emotional side of it has been years. You know, I, I, I've been, you know, emotionally thinking about when am I going to, you know, call it quits with this band at what point do i decide to myself that it's time and the 30-year debut anniversary just seemed like the perfect time but those are big existential questions right am i an artist am i a songwriter am i a what were the answers that you that you came up with or are you still working on those i'm still working on them i mean i you know to be honest with you i've, I've never really considered myself to be anything other than kevin from candlebox a, a drummer you know i started out as a drummer i ended up singing in a rock band it's been you know a 30 year 30 plus year career but um i don't think i i don't think i ever really um imagined that um i would decide what my term is i don't know I, I guess i guess i'm a songwriter and and i guess that i'm um a musician that has um had a, an illustrious career if you will um but i don't know really if that's what i am i i, I think I'm, I'm i think i'm just a human being that somehow got really really lucky and and thank god for people that wanted to listen to this you know band 30 plus years ago. I mean, I'd love to meet the first person that bought the very first Candlebox record. You know, I, I that would be a really interesting conversation because that's what gave me this career, that one decision. And, and it, you know, of course it spiraled and there was, you know, MTV and all that stuff gave me, you know, a, a, an outlet. But um, I really don't know if I can define what I am, you know, and yes, they are existential questions. And I think that we have to ask ourselves those kinds of questions sometimes. As you step away from this career and start to think about what your future looks like, is there a reinvention strategy in place? Are you, you know, thinking like, oh, I'll go rock climbing in this far off region or I'll surf across the globe? Is there a plan that's formulating? There is. I mean, you know, I, uh, my wife and I have plans to sail around the world in a couple of years. You know, there's a lot of things that I'm not, that I, I haven't been able to do for 30 years. And um, and I'm, and I'm really enjoying being a father when I'm home and I'm really enjoying being a husband when I'm home. I've got the Riptide Society organization that I've done, which is my, um, charity for at-risk youth and young adults in the foster care system. That's going to take a lot of my time. Um, people have been asking me to produce records. So, I mean, there's a lot that I can do, but I think really what I want to do is get out there and just see the world that I haven't seen in a long, long time. Have you always felt that you didn't belong? Have you always sort of felt like, 
not mistrustful because that's probably the wrong word, but a little uneasy about the institution of the the industry. One hundred percent. Yeah, I have always felt like an outsider in it. I mean, I, I felt like an outsider in Seattle. You know, I mean, being a band from that city and and having you know an entire city say, "Who are these guys? Where are they from? They've not from here." And well, we just happened to be five years in age younger, and we were still in high school when all you guys were playing all the clubs. You know, so. I mean, that was like, that was a hard thing for us. Um, but yeah, I've always felt like an outsider. I'm not the type of person, like if I'm at a concert and I see, you know, Billy Corgan or something backstage, I don't walk up and say, hey, how you doing, man? What's going on? Like, they know who I am. I just have never felt like I belonged in this job, if that makes sense. Or maybe even in this world of, of music. I'm very, very lucky. I know that. I know I've written some great songs. I know I've written some beautiful lyrics. And I know that I've, I've touched people's lives and, and as as I've done my own. But um, I don't know if I I don't know if I've ever felt like I belong to here. How about the just outside of music, just in the world as a person, as a civilian? Yeah, no, I know, I know, I do, I know, I belong there. Um, I feel very comfortable um, in environments, and I feel I feel extremely comfortable when I'm you know at the ocean and I got my toes in the water. That's where I feel mostly at home, um, and I don't know what that's about. Um, it's it's my wife and I. We we at least. Um, once or twice a week, we live in Los Angeles. We we make a trip down to Santa Monica and and just get in the sand. It's it's a connection for me. I don't know what that is, but yeah, I I have felt um you know I'm I belong here and I'm supposed to be here for some reason. Um, I just never felt like I belonged in the music industry. And maybe it's maybe what this is all leading me up to is this foundation where I, I'm I was so affected by watching my friends Maddie and Mary Beth um go through the foster um care system with their son Angel and. And watching them uh, adapt him that, um, you know, that really changed my whole perspective on what I'm doing and what I mean. And uh, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. When you were in high school, were you one of those guys who had a set group or could you move freely between groups? And if you could, why was that so easy for you? I could float between them all. And I think that's because I moved so much. Um, my father was a salesman. Um I was born in Chicago, and by the time I was 10, I'd lived in seven cities. So um, I was constantly making friends, and I had to learn how to fit in really, really quick. Plus, I was an, an athlete, so I, I played you know, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, track, all this kind of thing. So I always made sure that I was able to kind of fit in because I didn't want to get in a position where I didn't have some sort of comfort zone or safe safe space as a young teenager. I remember moving to San Antonio that was the first time that I ever felt really ostracized. And it was because Texas was such a different place. Um, it, 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 I mean, it's so massive. I mean, I, I went from going to a school with, um, I think it was like 75 kids to a school that had 2,500. And that just freaked me out. So it was a really hard transition for me. But then the three years that I was in Texas, um, allowed me to become the person that I am musically. And then I moved to Seattle where it just kind of blossomed for me. How did that sort of play with the idea of like what home really means? Like what, what is home? <laughs> I mean, home to me is when I'm with my family. That's it, it. And my wife and my son, I mean, they're, we have the best time. We're the best of friends. We laugh our asses off. I mean, it's, it's really, it's pretty great. And COVID was, was, it was hard um, because I'm not a teacher. Um, I, I've always just been what I consider to be like, a leader, if you will. Um, so having to to sit down with my son and understand this process that he was trying to run through his, you know, 11 year old brain 
um, was in, very enlightening and enriching for me. Um, and um, and so uh, that's when I'm with them. It doesn't matter where we're at. I that's where I feel most at home and most grounded, really. And that guy's in high school now. So do you do you watch his? Um, is that right? Is he, he high school? Yeah. Right? So you, yeah, he's you, a sophomore. You, he's a sophomore. So that's a it's a it's a pivotal year. I mean, it's interesting, probably watching his identity sort of form. Yeah, it's shocking. I brought him out here for um, ten days. <laughs> we first started touring in June, and um, it was an absolute blast. I mean, he he just is so uninterested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well in all of it you know i mean it just is so funny but then there was one show in chicago um and he was like you're a fucking rock star and i was like what what do you mean he goes i've never watched you perform like that that was something i'd never seen before and i was like well you've seen me play like 15 20 times he goes no no this was different like i'm seeing you in a different way it was a really interesting conversation and um and he was, I think he was leaving like uh, three or four days later. <clears throat> and he was like, I wish I could stay. Uh, but he had to get back because he was starting his um, soccer camp in the summer school. So he had to get back to LA. And he's like, I wish I could stay. I'm, I'm really enjoying it now. And I said, well, this is it for me. So if you want to come back, you need to let me know what dates and, and we'll see if we can figure it out. Unfortunately, we couldn't figure out time because, you know, school is very important and, and his thing. But it was interesting to, to watch him kind of see his father in a different light. Um, but yeah, watching him grow right now is fucking magical, man. It's it, his brain is just absorbing so much shit and he's got great friends. I love his friends. All of them are really good kids. And yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. What was he picking up on in that performance that was different than the other 15? I think he was realizing that there is an audience that really loves Candlebox. Um, and, uh, and that, I, I do very well in that environment. When there's accolades <laughs> or instant gratification, I'm very good at playing with that and enjoying that. And I mean, again, that comes from me moving so much as a kid and learning how to work within those environments or those, like you mentioned, can I just fit in all those you know places? And I think he realized that I am pretty good at my job. And, and I think he had not recognized that up until that moment. You know, you mentioned that you have been in that headspace for a long time, you know, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like an exit strategy was something to employ. But Candlebox has a fairly perfect discography. So my question is, how have you occupied that space of, you know, thinking about leaving and yet operating at such a high level? Well, I think, you know, you understand what your job is. and um, and there's there's always that little element of your job that you absolutely love if you're doing what you love i'm assuming you do because you're a professor oh, yeah. and and i mean so that one moment of that day is everything you work for so for me knowing that i can i can live in this environment because that hour and a half that i'm going to perform is is going to give me um the confidence that i need um i can survive in that what I do when I'm home, when I'm not in, in the world of the touring musician is um, I just kind of allow myself to breathe and listen to music in a different way. I, I find myself reaching for um, really different catalogs, um, different styles of music and bands to keep myself inspired, to keep myself 
in a moment so that knowing when I have to go back and do my job and be, you know, I'm not acting when I'm on stage. I'm not an actor, but I have a role that I play that I'm very comfortable when only when I'm on stage in that role. If I go out and sing with somebody else on their song, I'm in complete nervous wreck. My hands are shaking because it's not my song. I don't, I'm not connected to it. And, um, and so when I do my job to my band, I'm incredibly comfortable in it. And that's when I feel that I've, I've found some footing, but, um, most of the time it, I, you know, it's, I got to hype myself up. I'm nervous before shows, but, um, yeah, I, that's really the only place in that, that job that I love that, um, I feel somewhat normal. And it also incorporates some skills that your father had as a salesman. I mean, you do have to sell it on stage, yeah. right? You have to, I mean, that's what rock and roll is. And and that's what the best concerts that we've all loved is that this, I love this album. You go see the band play live and you're like, fuck, I love, I mean, it's the first time I saw Guns N' Roses blew my fucking mind. I'm like, this is the greatest band in the world. You know, that's because that's your job. You got to sell me on you. And that's what I have to do now. I have to sell Candlebox on an audience and certainly playing with Three Doors Down. This tour has been amazing. I mean, half their crowd probably doesn't even know who we are. And, and which I love because then now my debt makes my job even more fun because can I turn you into a Candlebox fan, you know, and, um, and I, and I enjoy that. You know, choosing to retire rather than being forced to retire, I think, you know, puts you in a pretty powerful position. Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you, I mean, I don't, I read a statement, I think it was, um, last year, somebody had posted something on, um, Instagram or something was about, you know, you work until you're 70 to have maybe 10 years of life um, to enjoy. And that's not what I want to be. I want to be, I want to be by the time I'm 60, traveling the world with my wife. By the time I'm 70, have traveled the world again with my wife. By the time I'm 80, retired on the beach somewhere in Australia with my toes in the sand and a cocktail in my hand with my wife. Give me 30 years of that. If I've get if I've had 30 years of this amazing life of doing what I'm doing, but I've missed a lot of things, give me 30 years of of pure enjoyment. And 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 I'm sure there's gonna be tons of ups and downs in that. And and you know, there's a dark side of retirement, there's a dark side of, of you know being alone, there's a dark side of being with the, your spouse for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But um I'm gonna live through that and I'm gonna survive that. But that's what I'm really looking for is 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 that freedom. And, and the joy of, I've lived this life, I've worked to this point, I don't want to die doing this, I want to die on my own terms, and I want to live the rest of my life as fucking fun as I can, and have as much fun as I can. That sounds like a great plan. When you were 22, <laughs> did you have a 30-year plan for the band, or were you just like, I don't know what's happening, let's just go with it? That's exactly what it was. I had no idea. And, um, and, and I was just like, God, if this happens, this would be the greatest gift ever. And thank God it was, you know. You're amazed to me. I'm so lost in you. Spiral staircase taking me high and low. You carry me when I let you down. Like ocean waves, you toss me to and fro. Every breath in me all belongs to you. Toss the key, cause I'm nowhere else to go. 
said and done Our bones turn to dust Your love's still the only truth I've known And I never understand in this business that we're talking about, you've seen a lot of people not survive, not make it. Um, do you think that sports was a great way to cultivate both self-preservation and discipline? I do think so, but it also had a lot to do with my father. Um, my father was a World War II veteran. He was born in 1922. Um, he's 20 years older than my mother. He was. He grew up through the Great Depression. He went to a Jesuit Catholic school in Chicago. He started in Golden Glove boxing when he was um, 17 and shipped off to um, Europe when he was 20. And, you know, so he grew up having to fight and survive for things. And he grew up on the south side of Chicago as well. So a tough neighborhood to, to be from. And so everything he taught me was about being as good of a human being as you can be and trusting your instincts. Um, he, he never said to me, you know, it, if you get in trouble, don't call me. He always said, if you get in trouble, call me, you know? Um, so I think that having that support structure and that family lifestyle, two older brothers and older sister, my parents were married for 42 years. My dad died at the age of 81. I, I knew, I knew what real safety was and what real security was. Um, 
and I think that, you know, I did a lot of drugs in high school. Um, I was just lucky to survive them. I don't know if it was, you know, maybe the discipline of, of the sports or the discipline that my father had taught me about being, you know, trust your instincts, know what you're doing and, and survive it. But then when I started playing music, he said, man, you got to do this. If you're going to do music, it has to be every ounce of your being. And that always struck with me because, you know, I, nowadays I, I drink whiskey and stuff when I'm in the studio. But back when we first started, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't drink anything when we were recording. I wanted to be as, you know, as focused and dedicated as, as possible. And that's what I was playing drums as well. So, you know, it was a different, different era for me. But um, I, I don't, I'm not really sure. It could be that, you know, watching a lot of my friends get really sick from heroin kept me away from it. You know, when I, when I first um, got to know Lane and he was doing a lot of heroin, uh, it was a really, you know, it's a weird place to be um, in a room with somebody that's doing that nodding off. And, and, you know, um, it, that scared me a little bit, you know, I was like, that's not something I want to do, but I'll do acid <laughs> or, oh, let's take mushrooms and go outside and experience the light, you know? Um, but it really, you know, I think it had a lot to do with my family, mostly. Um, just they were just so all uh, we're just very close still we're incredibly close and it sounds like your parents were supportive of you uh, you know venturing into a career in the arts both of them were my dad was a jazz musician and my mother was a, a, a standard singer so you know it's been in the family forever so did your dad it sounds like I'm not sure he was around to see the Candlebox success yeah. or did he just get the yeah. he got it yeah he died um in 2005 so yeah he, he saw the the height of it I mean I had him at Letterman you know we played Letterman my dad came and he and David Letterman talked for almost like an hour and a half because he was fascinated that my dad was as old as he was and then survived World War II and you know yeah my dad really got to experience some great stuff and and so did my my mother still is alive and she lives vicariously through the Facebook fans of Candlebox <laughs> yeah what is your your daily is there a daily exercise regime for you? And do you find that exercise is something that clears the head? Are you one of those guys? No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a go take a nice long walk. Um, have a cup of coffee, sit outside and admire the beauty of life for a minute. And then the exercise is what I get on stage. You know, that's when it's an hour and a half of me running around, you know, drenched in sweat when I'm done. And, and, um, when I'm home, I do. I hike a lot. We live in Los Angeles and we live right by Runyon Canyon. So I, I, I'm hiking Runyon uh, four or five days a week with my wife. And, um, and I love that. But mostly for me, it's just getting out into nature. Have you had lasting friendships in this industry? And how important are those friendships for you? I'm, I'm, I'm close to some industry people um, just because the, per, the, the, there was a group that we started with that I'm, I'm very close with. That's Helena Corum. Um, uh, and uh, Larry White and um, uh, Howie Klein, of course, who was Seymour Stein's right-hand man. Howie and I have been friends for, you know, 32 years. Um, Kenny Pavogel is another one of our friends from Maverick. I'm still great friends with Guy O'Siri, um, who manages Madonna and everybody. You know, I, I, those relationships are important because these are people that I was very, very close to uh, at the lowest part of my career and also at the peak of my career. And they never, they never left. Um, but, you know, again, that's not um, that's not something I reach to my phone to call. You know, my my close friends and family are are the most important to me. Howie did this thing because I'm from the Bay Area. So Howie was out here with 415 Records in the 80s. Yeah. And he, he just he reached out to me. I was a high school DJ at this metal radio station here, like in Concord. And he wrote to me and he was like, you know, would you play Wire Train and until December? And I thought, 
I could probably sneak those in between accept and venom, right? <laughs> Let's just try it. Uh, so I did, and he he used to write me letters, and he was like really supportive of me, and really, um, I've never forgotten how kind he was to me as a young man. He's a solid dude. He is. He's no bullshit, man. He's and and Seymour was great too. I mean, Seymour and Howie used to come see Candlebox all the time. Like oh, really? I would see them in Columbus, Ohio. Like, what are you guys doing here? We have to be in town. Want to come see the show? I mean, it just great, lovely. Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny when people are cool. You, you don't forget that. No, you don't. You just don't. No, I still have my letter that Howie wrote to me when he went to Sire, and he sent me the replacements. Don't tell, don't tell us all album. Oh, cool. You know, and he was just, he was like, "Hey, good luck in college," and you know. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. We talk at least, I'd say, probably once every two or three months. Just he'll call out of the blue, or I'll call him. Wait, what are you doing? Are you going to see the show? I'll meet you there. Yeah. So what happens if you're you're with your wife, you're sailing around the world, and you take out a guitar and start writing a song? Do you go like, oh, I guess I'm still that guy? Or, I mean, do you think about what that's going to look like? I think that the guitar is always going to be there for me, and um, and I will I will reach for it. Um, but no, I don't I don't think um, I don't think I'll have that type of realization. I'll just I, uh, it's most likely just going to be, and it's of course I'm I'm, I'm guessing, but that's an old friend, and I just want to pick it up and say hello for a little bit, you know? Yeah. It sounds like Candlebox has a lot of material on the cutting room floor or to be more we specific do. in the vault, in the vault. We do. Yeah. Is that music that, that you feel you'd like to release to the fans at one point, or is that something that's not a huge concern? I think maybe at the 40th anniversary of the debut album, there's some stuff, but I mean, you know, this box set that's coming out with Maverick, um, that's got like, I think 20 unreleased things on it, something um, so, or maybe 15, but uh, you know, that's got a lot of stuff. But for this record, we have, well, there are five songs that we haven't finished for this record. So there's a possibility that I'll re release an EP next year just for the hell of it. As, can as Candlebox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I love about this album, Kevin, is that the, like I said, you and I, we we know what this means, but like we used to sit at the bus stop and go, okay, what's the best album closer of all time? <laughs> right? Yeah, like yeah. the replacements, here comes a regular, or uh, you know, violent femmes, good feeling, or or whatever, yeah. right? Um so hourglass on the version I have is the closer, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a great th to me. This this album feels like a song cycle, it feels novelistic and that it's it, that there's a there's a flow to it. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Go figure. Yeah. I so, mean, and that was the concept. Yeah. And of course, that's why we used a book on the cover of the of the album. Yeah. So I mean, Hourglass, to me, I listened to the album, I thought, like, that's the obvious album closer. That would be the that's of course. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And the reason uh, I'll tell you the reason nobody's asked that. Um, it, because I mean it is the hourglass is breaking, time is, you know, sand is filling out. That's life. You know, life is it comes to an end. Um when I finished reading Mark Lanigan's book, Read Backwards and Weep, um, that final chapter was so devastating. And, and I was like, fuck you, man. God, you're so talented. And you, and, you, and you just go like that. It was the best punch in the gut. And, uh, and I wanted that. You know, I, I, wanted, uh, I wanted the last song to close this chapter abruptly because that's what I'm doing. You know, it has been a long goodbye. I've, I've been feeling like, you know, like we talked earlier, 
for years, like I didn't belong for years, like this, how do I end this? When am I going to wrap it up? And, um, and I wanted that song. I was so adamant. I was like, this has got to be the closing track. This is just absolutely everything that I want. And it's what better way to do it than just take the needle off the record, you know? And if that's what it does, it's just an abrupt ending. You know, it might be my favorite Candlebox song of all time. Oh, thank you, man. It's a beautiful song. Thank you very much. I love it. It's a stunner. It's a real stunner. Okay, here's a tough question. So you've been thinking about this for a long time. What made you finally get the nerve to go? And there's why now and not 10 years ago? Or did you just gather up enough enough courage? Or like, that's a tough one. It It, it really was... It really was COVID. It was being home with my wife and having those conversations um, about, you know, why am I doing this? Where is this taking me? Is this is is this, you know, going to be the rest of my existence? Am I going to constantly live in a world where I feel that I don't belong in this musical world? Um, and she was just like, then just do what you want to do. She's like, you know, you, you, you have to be true to yourself. And if she said, if you feel like you're not, and, and this is not where you want to be, she said, then just close the chapter, be done with it. And it was, I mean, she was so plainly basic about it. And, and so like unapologetic about being that honest, you know, just like, just then quit, be done with it. If you feel that that's what you want to do, she said, then make the record you want to make, how you want to make it, make it with your friends and then say goodbye. And I, and I just love that. I was like, that's fucking awesome. You know? Yeah. What a, I mean, it's, and, it, and it really took, it was more so her courage to tell me to do that, I think, than my courage to make the decision. It took me until my 40s to break up with a girl. Like, I <laughs> I remember feeling like just so uh, lucky that like a, a woman liked me, that I would just be like, oh, I'm just gonna, even if it was horrifyingly bad, I would like guard it like a flame. Um, even though I knew I shouldn't be in that relationship. It took me so long. Were you, this is a weird question, Kevin. Like, were you good at breaking up with people when you were dating? Were you good at that? Were you good at walking away? No, absolutely okay. not. I'm very, yeah, I'm a homeless romantic, man. So it's like, want to make it work, want to make it work. I mean, the music that I've written is, you know, it's all fucking romance. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm obsessed with it. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's the most beautiful thing in the world to experience this and, and see this stuff and, you know, and, and live this life. But um, no, I was terrible at it because, uh, you know, and even the ones that, like you mentioned, yeah, they're, they're bad for you, but you, you try and fix them and, and you try and stay in it, you know, or it was it was a place to live for a little bit, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Starving musician days. So. I know you love that Lanigan book and for good reason, but with all the experiences that you've had, have you thought about writing a book yourself? I don't know if my life is interesting enough uh, for that. You know, I mean, Mark was... I mean, all the biographies I've read of all the musicians, you know, they, there's always the same story. There's a band you tour with you don't fucking like. There's a band you tour with that's, you know, decadent and, and ridiculous and, you know, out of their minds or drugs and alcohol. I mean, we've all seen the stories. We've all, you know, we've all watched the behind the musics and stuff. And I think you know, my existence as a young man just really isn't that interesting. And I don't know if there's a story that I could tell that would make anybody want to read the story of my life you know I, I've, I've done the things that most musicians have done I've toured with some great bands there's a lot of stories about those tours that I, I wouldn't want to tell um, that you know would be incredibly you know I mean the clearance on the Metallica tour would take years so <laughs> if, I, if I had to talk about the Metallica tour I, I don't know if I'd ever clear any of those stories but you know I mean it's uh, it's 
I don't know if I'm interesting enough, you know, and, and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, but I've had a lot of writers say, dude, let's write a book. I'll, I'll ghost it with you or I'll help you write it. And I'm like, I just don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm that person. I mean, I think already listeners are, listeners are probably like, wait, what happened on the Metallica tour? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That tour was insane, man. I'm not even lying. Were they nice guys? Lovely. They were great. I mean, that's back when they were still partying, you know, that's 94. So they were still partying pretty heavily. And, um, but yeah, they were great, dude. That tour was dangerous and and terrifying and fucking insanity. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of stories from that tour that are fucking hilarious, but that's for another day. Well, I'm glad you survived it, but how did you uh, enjoy yourself and protect yourself at the same time? Well, again, it was, you know, growing up in Seattle and being around a lot of that, the drug culture that, you know, was going on in Seattle, it kind of, it allowed me to keep my distance from the things that would have, you know, certainly been detrimental to my well-being out there. Um, and I thought, you know, like I said, my dad always said, trust your instincts. And and that's just the thing, you know, like if you step into an environment where it feels um, a little bit out of control and uncontrollable and, and and you're not really sure how you're supposed to play that card, step away from it, you know? Um, and that's just what I did. There were a lot of occasions, a lot of the hotel rooms and, and dressing rooms and parties that I stepped out of, you know, at a very early, early period in that, in the beginning of those parties, you know? So, um, but again, that's, you know, that's life is a rock and roller. And, you know, in the nineties, the decadence was not slowing down. And, um, and, and, you know, these, everybody was having a good time and, and I think and being remotely safe. So, um, I didn't, you know, uh, it was, I certainly was devastated when Shannon Hoon passed because I was supposed to see the guys, um, the next night, um, after we were starting our tour and, um, and I got the phone call from Christopher and that was just, uh, it was heartbreaking. And, and that's another thing, you know, when you have a reality check like that, um, you just, uh, I don't know. I did, I never wanted to be the poet that, you know, got lost in the drugs and alcohol. I wanted to be the poet that survived if that's what um, what I'm calling this, you know, is, 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 um, I, I wanted to have, I wanted to enjoy everything, but I also wanted to survive it. And that's just kind of where my head's always been. Candlebox in many ways is like you in high school in the sense that you got, that you could float around with any group. Candlebox could tour with Metallica. You could be paired with any of the bands from Seattle. You could be, so did that sort of elasticity of Candlebox's sort of way of moving through the world, that must have been a huge advantage in the sense that you could find yourself in different different realms that other bands get pigeonholed and wouldn't have a chance to get out of. Yeah, it's it's it was great. I mean, uh, you know, being able to play festivals with everybody from the Smashing Pumpkins to Nine Inch Nails, you know, stuff like that. Um, right. It's a it's a great place to be. The only downside to it is you kind of become the journey of the Seattle music scene, which is you know everybody loves Journey, everybody doesn't want to talk about Journey, you know, and and. Uh, and, and so we were kind of that band that, um, put them on the bill, but put them a little bit lower down on the bill, you know, sort of thing. Like we've never done Lollapalooza, um, but we did it in Chile, South America, but we haven't done Lollapalooza in Brazil, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of, we've, that journeyman job that we had has become smaller. It's almost like you become with the DH. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's you, oh, look, Colin, we need, he, bring those guys in. We need a, we need a little right. bit of a home run here. So throw them in the, you know, and that's right. exactly. And again, I mean, it's weird to be a second thought band, you know, from Seattle, 
And, and the, you know, the fact that we've never toured with Pearl Jam, we never toured with Alice in Chains, we never toured with, we never toured with Soundgarden, even though we played shows in the same um, venue as them. We've never toured with another Seattle band. Pearl Jam's never had us open, um, but we've taken Seattle bands on the road with us. We took Sweetwater out on the road. We took Green, Green Apple Quick Step on the road. You know, so we we became kind of the band that took those other bands out with us, but we were never invited into that family. And so being a second thought rock band is a weird place to be. So it it does work at times where you can journey in between all these venues. You can play with all these concerts and you play all these bands and you can fit in every single realm, but it sucks when you, should be on that bill and you're not on the bill you know they put bush of, on it yeah did you did you that sort of like was that vexing for a little while it's been vexing for years yeah, yeah. i mean it, i mean it's just it's it's a hard place to be as a band because you know you're just as important as filter or bush or the smashing pumpkins or you know stp or you know all those bands that were in the same generation in the same group as us you know you're just as important as them but you don't get the slot and it's uh you know it's just, it's kind of a shitty place to be because you know you're good and you know you deserve it but you just don't get it you also knew a lot of those guys i know all of them right so th- so there never was a conversation of like hey we should go on the road with you guys right oh no we do we i've talked to every single one of them about it i mean even billy corgan and i he was you know he was supposed to produce the song we did for the water boy um the Adam Sandler film, and uh, he backed out at the last minute. I don't know what happened with that, but he and I talked about touring, you know, for years. Every time he's like, "Oh, we should do some dates," and I'm like, "Don't even fucking say it, dude. It, it never happens." Alice in Chains, you know, same thing there. Like I've known Jerry and Sean. Sean, when I was a drummer, Sean used to come to my rehearsal room, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, you got any drumsticks?" And I would give him drumsticks because he never bought sticks, but we've never toured with him. Wow. So after a while, yeah. that conversation must have got, you know, sort of gotten kind of tiresome to you. I just, uh, well, I just got like this. I'm not even having it. <laughs> like, I'm, yeah. I'm not having a conversation now, you know, yeah. because they know exactly what I'm going to say. I was gonna, I, we're happy to do it anytime. All you got to do is ask. It never got asked. Nope. <laughs> By the way, I love Sweetwater. That was a great band. They are a great band and they're still, they're still making music. They're, they've got a record that just came out. Yeah, it's great. I gotta track those guys down. Remember a band called uh, Gnome? G N O M E. Love them. Okay. okay, those guys put two records out back to back that are like perfect albums. Yeah, and no one's heard them except you and no I. No one's heard them. What happened to those guys? I have no idea. That's a great question. I'm actually gonna look them up now because I haven't thought of that name in probably 10, 15 years. But two great records, right? They're a fucking stellar band. Yeah. 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 They were really. They were really good. Uh, well, dude, I look, I think you have a career to be very proud of, obviously. Thank you. Um, I agree with your son. You are a fucking rock star. And, you know, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I think your life is very interesting. I think that you have access, have had access to things that people, um, you know, can only, only dream of. So maybe, maybe one an introspective moment on the, you know, the Riviera, you'll start writing like him. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. And I'll call you and you help me write it. I'll help you write it. Um, I, you know, I've always wanted to talk to you, and for whatever reason, I, it never happened. I'm so, I'm so grateful to have a chance to chat with you before you before you uh, disappear into the ocean. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate it very much. Been a great chat.
That was a great chat. Kevin from Candlebox, really nice guy. I enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoy the album very much, The Long Goodbye. You're going to love it too. Pick it up. Candleboxrocks.com is where you need to go to find out all the tour dates that are remaining. Get some merch. Pick up some vinyl. You look adorable in a Candlebox hoodie. Do they have those? I don't know if they have them. I'm sure they do. There's really only one way to find out, and that is to go to CandleboxRocks.com. Go there, have a look around, pick something up. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can also follow me on what's left of Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or you can email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And we are always happy to report that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell all your friends. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Punks, taken from Candlebox's final album, The Long Goodbye. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. Cause every time it gets wasted And what's the point of trying to chase it When it's already gone, already gone And I don't wanna fuck the same way that I did Or hit repeat upon the same day that I lived The sky is falling, that's what they say, baby But it's already gone, already gone We're the punks, we're the same ones that you fear We're the same ones that you feel We paint these streets, that's why you're